Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This week we have Brian Horton from the Greenup Baptist Association with us. Brian is a mission and evangelism strategist who helps empower churches and their leaders in Eastern Kentucky to carry out the Great Commission. In this episode, Brian helps us identify five things that make God's amazing grace so amazing. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Brian with today's message. What is so amazing about grace? Well, good morning. It is, uh, you can do better than that. Good morning. There you go. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you today. It's an honor to uh, preach uh, from God's Word in this pulpit. It's something I don't take lightly. Uh, as a former pastor myself, I know that whenever I was on vacation, I had to know uh, who was going to be in that pulpit. I had to be able to trust them. So I thank uh, Pastor Heath for that, that trust that's been extended to spend this time with you in God's Word. Uh, it, it's a great day if I'm walking a little bit higher than normal today. It's a really good day, an abnormal day for me. I was able to be in Sunday school this morning, and uh, Brother Greg did a great job in that class, really enjoyed that. Despite Rick Muster being in there, it was a great class. And, um, but, you know, it is. It's also a good day because my wife is with me today, my wife Tara. Uh, we've been married for 23 years and seven months, and what's today? The 30th, 30 days. So uh, I know exactly. I, I've, I've told the story before of uh, when I uh, started going to youth group as a teenager. Uh, when the, the first person I met in that youth group called me a dork, and that's her. <laughs> so I married her, and uh, so... So be warned if you're a teenager and a somebody calls you a dork, just be careful. So that's all I can say to that. But uh, it is uh, it's an honor to serve as your mission strategist for the Greenup Baptist Association. And if you're not familiar with what that is, the Greenup Baptist Association is a network of 47 churches covering Greenup, Boyd, Carter, Elliott, and Lawrence counties. And uh, we labor together to advance God's kingdom. Uh, it's pretty simple as as that. And I'm thankful for the the historic partnership of Unity Baptist Church. Unity Baptist Church was one of the first three churches that founded the Greenup Baptist Association 182 years ago. Uh, so there's a lot of great history uh, with this church and with the association. And uh, to, to be quite simple, we work together to develop healthy churches and healthy leaders. And uh, we, we work hard in that. We do things together that would be harder to do if we were separate. And uh, some of those things include uh, church planting and replanting. Um, since 2018, we've seen five new church plants. Uh, the newest one is just getting started literally two weeks ago. We had a, a Filipino-American pastor move from California to Ashland to plant the first Filipino-American church uh, that we know of in the tri-state area. Uh, so we're really excited to see how God's going to work in that uh, effort. We also come together to do things for the gospel. Uh, on September 9th, uh, we are inviting folks from every church to descend on downtown Grayson. Uh, we're going to have a day of outreach uh, opportunities, an evangelistic uh, outreach. We're hoping to touch over a thousand lives that day with the gospel. So uh, things have been sent to the churches, to your pastors. So hopefully you'll be hearing about that. And if you don't, ask Pastor Heath. Tell me about All for One. Have you heard about that? Uh, but don't wait on him. Uh, go to greenupbaptist.org and you'll see All for One and you can read more information about that. So commercials are over. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. And as you were turning there, you know, I love history. I, I love to think through historical events. I love to talk through historical events. And one of my favorite comes out of the 18th century in England, where there was a young man by the name of John who considered himself to be an utter failure in life. I mean, his habitual poor choices, his own lifestyles uh, led to a lifelong struggle. And he'd be the first to admit that. As a child, John's father was a merchant at sea, and so he was gone most of the time. 
He was gone uh, for months on end, and that left John's mother to keep him close to home, uh, to try to raise him correctly. She tried to teach him the things of God by walking through hymns, teaching what the words meant, and singing them together. John's mother died when he was rel- <coughs> excuse me, relatively young, however, and that forced John to go live on the sea with his father, to live on those merchant ships. And that was not the greatest of lives to live. And uh, the, the wretched lifestyle, the, the immorality that, that was around him at all times affected him so much so that eventually John in his young adulthood would set aside his childhood teachings, the things that he learned from his mother and adopted the debauchery that surrounded him. He was soon forced into service on a, on a ship called the HMS Harwich, and his rowdy behavior continued so much so that the captain and he did not see eye to eye, and eventually the captain sent him off to uh, serve on another ship. He sent him to work on a slave ship bound for Guinea. His behavior did not improve with that. He had conflict with that captain, and the captain decided that the way to control John was to treat him like the slaves on the ship. He chained him to the deck of the boat. Eventually, John's father came to his rescue. He heard what was happening, and he came, and he negotiated for his release, but he said, no more sea life for you. He sends him back to England, but here's what happens. On his way back to England, a massive storm comes up at sea. And for days, the, the, the wind and the surge from the sea pounded that, that boat. And, and fearing death in that moment, John started to reflect on his life. He started to think about what a waste, right? What, what a waste he had made of his, his life. And, and therefore, when, when, the, when the ship finally landed, or what was left of it, when it landed, it landed in Ireland and John made his way to the first church he could find and he threw himself on the altar and he begged God for mercy. He begged him for forgiveness. (laughs) Well, the atrocities of the slave industry had not reached Britain yet, had not reached the government. And John, still having to have a job, continued to work in this industry. Even though it conflicted with his newfound faith, he, he continued to work in the, in the trade, and he found himself as a first mate on a, on a ship bound for Charleston, South Carolina. Eventually, John would work his way up the ranks. He would become captain of a slave ship, but soon he started developing health problems. He started having seizures, and that forced him to resign his post, an, an event that later on John would say was God's way of freeing him from that lifestyle. This, this allowed John to now begin to use his newfound faith and to be able to focus on where he was with God. And he began to study, he began to write, he began to teach. He even pursued a ministerial position in the Church of England, but his lack of formal education prevented that. However, the more he taught, especially as he told about his account at sea and all the things he had gone through, he began to teach and he began to write, and that, that caught attention. He was encouraged to, to publish these stories, and, and as he did, the, the account crossed over England, so much so that Lord Dartmouth himself read this account, and he was so impressed, he was so moved at what had happened in John's life that he appointed him to a church in only England. For the next 43 years, John served those people. His penchant for writing continued, and John authored many books, many sermons, many letters, and even hymns. As a compliment to his sermon dated January 1st, 1773, a message titled, Faith's Review and Expectations from 1 Chronicles 17, John wrote and led the congregation in the singing of a hymn that he entitled, Amazing grace. That song was just not carefully crafted words that sounded good. It it chronicles the incredible journey of faith of John Newton. Here today, some 250 years later, amazing grace is known 
It's, it's loved. It's sang by the church. Even those who are loosely affiliated with the things of God know the song. They've heard the words and could probably even recite them, even though they may not know what they mean. But, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I love to study history, and as I do, I love to put myself there. I try to remember or try to think, what would it be like to have been in that situation or to be an observer? And as I think about life, the life of John Newton and as he was writing Amazing Grace, I wonder, I just, I'm just speculating here, but I wonder if late 1772 in December of 1772 at that church in Olney, maybe in a, in a dank, dark room downstairs somewhere as as John Newton was working on the lyrics to this hymn pondering how to best describe the grace that he had experienced he didn't have the benefit of Roger's thesaurus that wouldn't be published until 1852 so he's pondering in his mind how do I best describe this grace and I like to imagine there was probably crumpled up pieces of paper all around him with each one, there was probably another adjective. And as he would write it with his quill, he would just, that doesn't seem to quite describe grace. And I just wonder if maybe the night was getting very late and maybe his candle on his desk was down to the last half inch of wick and it was about to go out. And I wonder if it was in that moment he had this, this illumination in his mind that the best way to describe the grace that he had experienced is amazing. John Newton experienced amazing grace. He didn't write about it, just write about it. He experienced amazing grace. Do you know, years before all that, years before John Newton's life-altering voyage back to, to England, Moses also experienced that kind of grace. And from the account of Exodus 34, I believe God would have us to see this morning what is so amazing about grace. Would you stand with me as we read together from God's word? In Exodus chapter 34, the first eight verses. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of that mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And with that, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Would you pray with me? God, to you we would offer our sincere gratitude for your amazing grace. We pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds would be turned to you, that, Father, any distraction, any obstacle that would keep us from hearing from you today would be removed. And, Father, we pray to you who is far more able to do anything that we can ask, think, or imagine, that you would move in this place, that, Father, that you would revive the hearts of the saints and that you would convict the hearts of the sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Grace is the most beautiful and complete word to describe the God we serve. It is the absolute most beautiful and complete word to describe God. The Greek word comes from this word charis, and it's a word we know in the English as charity. 
Okay, charity is a, is a non-meritorious gift or an unearned gift, an unearned favor. And, and, and the reason I suggest that this would be the most beautiful and complete word to describe our God is because that word grace conveys that God, in his great love, desires his creation to live in a personal relationship with him. But that relationship we know is not possible because of the fact that we are born separated from him. We are born into sin. Our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They rebelled against God's authority. They questioned their identity as his creation. They, they rebelled against what he set as the standard, and it creates this division between us and God. We inherited this. By the fact that we were born in this world, we have inherited this original sin, and that sin demands a, a, a penalty to be paid. And that, that penalty is described by God as having to be paid by blood. The good news is, and here is the gospel, that God paid that penalty through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It, it, we did not earn it. We did not work for it. And we certainly did not even deserve it, yet it was freely given to us as a gift. Salvation then necessarily is an act of grace. It's an act of grace. That's why Philip Yancey describes grace as a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. Now, one may expect when you hear a message on grace that certainly we're going to be in the New Testament, and there, there will obviously be quotations in the New Testament. That would, that would certainly be apropos to, to go straight to the New Testament to talk about where Jesus talks about grace, where Paul talks about grace. And again, we will get there, but it is also important to understand that, that God's amazing grace was extended from the very beginning to us. That's why we have to look at this way back. And in Exodus 34, to, to get, understand where we're going there, we got to get a running start into that passage. And we got to go way back, even 10 chapters beyond, Exodus 24. We start there in Exodus 24, we see where God summoned Moses the first time to meet him on top of Mount Sinai. This is where God gives him those 10 commandments, right? He, he has those two tablets. God's inscribed them. He gives them these words, these commandments for Israel to live by. Now, Moses had already spoken these things. He had already said these things to Israel, but God would now inscribe them on these stone tablets to ever keep them before the people, to always be there, to set that standard for his own people, that this is who you are supposed to be. This is what identifies you. This is what separates you from this world. And it's under, important to understand also, the manner in which that, uh, Moses walked up on Mount Sinai, and this, was a, this was a terrifying experience. This wasn't a nice little hike through the woods up to a peak to overlook it. This was a terrifying experience. Exodus 24, 15 through 17 describes the scene as this cloud that is hovering over the mountain for six days and that the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of that mountain. It's in that cloud, it's in that fire that Moses enters. And he doesn't just walk into it and back out. He stays there 40 days and 40 nights. And because of all this, because of the, the terrifying scene, again, Israel's in the valley, they're seeing all this take place. Because of that terrifying sight, because of the elongated time that Moses is on the mountain, the Israelites begin to panic. They begin to question God. And they call on Moses' brother, Aaron. They say, Aaron, you're number two. You're the second man in charge here. What are we going to do? Apparently, Moses is not coming back. He's been gone for 40 days, 40 nights. You see the smoke. You see the fire. This is not good. Aaron, you're the boss. You tell us what to do. Aaron goes around and he collects all the earrings and all the bracelets and all the necklaces. He melts them down. He fashions this golden calf and he says these horrible, terrible words. This is now your God. He leads them into idol worship. He leads them into breaking the very first of those commandments. Moses comes down off the mountain. 
He sees all this happening, and he responds by by taking those tablets, and he throws them down. Now, this wasn't a a fit of anger. This wasn't a temper tantrum. This wasn't a, hey, you guys, you're supposed to be listening to me. He symbolically shows them, you have broken all of these commandments with this action. This is how Moses responds, but how did God respond? How would you respond if you were being cheated on like that? How would you respond if you had saved the very lives of a people only to have them turn their backs on you? God determines, I'm going to execute my judgment. I'm going to expel Israel from the base of Mount Sinai. He declares that he would consume these stiff-necked people. That just means they were stubborn. That means they were rebellious. It meant they didn't have the ability to humble themselves before God. In that moment, Moses, though, pleads on behalf of the people of Israel. He goes to God in the tent of the meeting in Exodus 33, 11. It says, God spoke to Moses as a man would speak to his friend. That is a wonderful example of itself of grace. That, that God speaks to us as a man does his friend. In this meeting, because Moses had found favor in the sight of God, not Israel, God declares that he would not, in fact, remove his presence from his people. In fact, he says these beautiful words, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. See, God is well within his rights to execute judgment here, but he does not. Not out of any merit of Israel, but solely based on the fact that his choice servant, mediates on their behalf. Do you see the foreshadowing into the gospel there? How there is nothing on our end, there is nothing about us, no merit of our own that would cause God to stay his execution, to stay his judgment, but only based on the fact that his choice servant, his son, Jesus Christ, mediated on the cross on our behalf, can we have grace? Can we have forgiveness? God directs Moses after that. He says, I want you to cut two more tablets and I'm gonna write the words again. So here's Israel, they're getting a do-over. Moses cuts the tablets, he ascends back up the mountain and that brings us to Exodus 34. This is where we see what is exactly so amazing about grace. Five ways I wanna show you that grace is so amazing. Number one is this, grace is amazing because grace redeems from sin. Grace redeems from sin. In Exodus 34, 7, God says it's because of his grace that we see he forgives the iniquity, the transgression, and the sin of those whom he loves. And you may be thinking, as I do, aren't those the same thing? Iniquity, transgression, sin, yes, they they are basically, they are the same thing. Why is this so important? Three words are mentioned here because three in the Bible talks about a divine wholeness and perfection. What we can understand from that is God perfectly forgives us. He doesn't partially forgive us. He wholly, with perfection, forgives us of our sins. This is the most important and primary purpose of grace. It's the redemption of our sins. And, and this grace is not merely something that, that God reserves for the downtrodden, gutter-dwelling reprobates. Grace is extended to all because it's needed by all. And it's needed in order to live that abundant life that Christ promises for us. Several years ago, there's a very particular or peculiar sight in a large city church. On the first Sunday of the new year, an ex-convict knelt to receive communion, and he did so beside the judge who had sentenced him to prison seven years prior. After being sentenced, this young convict was led to Christ through the church's prison ministry. After his release, he became an active member of the church. After church that day, after receiving communion, the judge was walking home alongside the pastor. And the judge made this comment. He says, what an amazing miracle of grace that was today. And the pastor says, oh, I understand. You're you're obviously talking about the former thief who knelt beside you today. And the judge says, no, no, pastor. I was thinking of myself. 
He said that young man had nothing but a history of crime before him and behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew there was salvation. He knew there was hope. He knew there was joy for him. He knew how much he needed help. But look at my life. I was taught from the earliest days to live my life as a gentleman. I was taught that my word was my bond. I was taught to say my prayers and to go to church and to, to be active and to give and to be the, all these things that you would expect of a Christian to be. He said, I've been very successful in my life. I've gone to law school. I've earned multiple degrees. I passed the bar and eventually I became a judge. And then he said these words. He says, Pastor, nothing, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit I was a sinner in need of Jesus. Nothing but the grace of God could cause me to see that. Paul tells the church at Ephesus that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And that same promise is true for each and every person in this room today. You can have forgiveness of your sin. You can be redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And this is available simply because his grace. Why? Because that's what grace does. That's why grace is so amazing. It's why John Newton wrote that first line. He says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's why grace is so amazing, because it redeems us from our sin. But secondly, grace is amazing because grace relieves our fears. Grace relieves our fears. Look in verse 6 of Exodus 34. There's a, there's a passage in there that doesn't need to be overlooked. It says, the Lord passed before him. The Lord passed before him. The word passed through, this is the same word that is used when we find out what happens with Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. That's where God, of course, covenants with Abram. He says, I'm going to give you a land I'm going to show this land to you. I'm going to make you a great nation, but you, you've got to leave everything. You, can you just feel the, the, the fear that Abram must have felt? God told him to leave his home, the home of his family, to leave his father's house, to everything he knew, to, to be familiar to him, to everything that was comfortable to him. He says, I want you to leave that and follow me. Where are we going, God? He says, I'm going to show you. The more you follow, the more I'll show you. The further you go, the more I show. God repeatedly states that. He says, I will lead you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. And in Genesis 12, 6, we see the promises fulfilled. Abram passed into the land to which God had provided and led him to. It's that same concept that's being described here the fact that God passed before Moses on Mount Sinai is a reminder that if you're a child of God, you don't have reason to fear what's ahead. You don't have reason to fear that. And the, the Lord your God in his grace passes in front of you. He passes in front of us. And, and not just the things ahead in this life. Not just what happens tomorrow, not what happens when I go back to school, not what happens when I go back to work, not what happens when the next election takes place, not, not, what happen, not just those things and the worries that those things brings, but more importantly, all our fears concerning our eternal life are relieved because what we understand is our home in heaven is now secure. You may be petrified to think about this. You may be petrified to think about death. It may not have been a major concern years ago when you're at your, the peak of your life. I remember many years ago, I, I, it didn't even cross my mind. I didn't even think about those kind of things. But the, the older you get, the more you think about it. Health problems begin. All these things start happening and you start to realize, you know what? I'm not immortal after all. You're realizing more than ever the things that you were taught as a kid are true. There are two things that are certain in life Death and taxes, right? <laughs> Did you know one in one people die at some point in their life? I'll let that sink in for you. Did you know that life is the number one cause of death? 
think about these things. Death's inevitable, isn't it? It's going to happen. Either we're going to naturally pass away from these mortal shells or Jesus will return and take us home. But somehow we will pass from here. And that can be a scary proposition if you're unsure of your final destination. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you've been relieved of that fear, haven't you? That's been settled for you because that's what grace does for us. That's why grace is so amazing. This is why John Newton wrote the second verse. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the very hour I first believed. In that moment, he had that settled peace, and that's a settled peace that you can have as well. See, grace is amazing because it redeems us from our sin. It relieves us of our fears. But number three, grace responds with mercy. Grace responds with mercy. Still in verse six there, God tells Moses, I am slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love. It's my favorite Hebrew word, has said. I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. The translation, mercy. Hased sometimes translates into mercy. He's promised good to me. He's promised mercy despite my rebellious spirit. You know, grace has been defined often as getting what I don't deserve, and that's true. Mercy's a little bit different. They're like first cousins. Mercy keeps me from what I do deserve. And the best way I know how to illustrate that is by telling you that I have a brother who's almost 10 years older than I am. And that's awesome now that we're both adults and he's a grandfather and, and you know, he travels the country and I get to talk to him occasionally and we, we talk about life and that's great. But it was really awkward when I was six and he was 16, especially when I got into his room without permission. And especially when I broke his model cars that he'd been working on. Y'all remember model cars, right? Some of you do. He had a whole shelf of them. And I don't remember which one I broke, but I do remember my arm almost got broke because of it. As it was twisted like a pretzel behind my arm, or behind my back. And he might would have continued, but he exercised mercy on me. He kept me from getting what I do deserve in that moment. And as I reflect on that in my life, I think maybe it wasn't so much mercy from him. Maybe it was because Mom was standing right behind him, knowing that if he did hurt me, he was going to get hurt. Then we're both hurt, and it's just a bad day. My mom was my shield of protection in that moment. She was the enforcer of mercy in that moment. This is, this is what David talks about in Psalm 3.3. He says, but you, O Lord, you're a shield about me when nobody would help David. When he was out there on his own, facing all the elements, spiritual, emotional, mental, all those things, he's facing them alone, God would be his shield. When David had nothing to treasure, when he was spiritually, emotionally, mentally bankrupt, God would be his treasure. God would be his glory. When nobody would encourage him, when everybody would run him down, when everybody would tell him it was impossible, when everybody would tell him to give up, God himself would encourage him. God would literally take his, his, his buried head and lift it high. And that's what God is ready, able, and willing to extend to you this morning. That's grace. And that's a grace and a mercy that is amazing. It's why Newton wrote this third verse. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. Where do you find hope this morning? It's in his word. His word my hope secures. He my shield and portion will be. He will protect me. He will provide for me. And how long will he do it? As long as life endures. John Newton was convinced of that. He had experienced an amazing grace. He'd experienced an amazing grace that had redeemed him from sin. He experienced amazing grace that had relieved his fear. He experienced an amazing grace that had responded in mercy, but he also experienced an amazing grace that reassured through the dangers. Grace reassures through danger. Look in verse 5 of Exodus 34. Don't forget here the scene at the time, okay? Don't forget what's happening here, that Moses is ascending this mountain. It's a, it's a dark, 
thick cloud of smoke and a, and a fire that seemed to devour the mountain. The, the Israelites had to be scared to death, unsure what was happening to their leader. And, and Moses must have also felt that. Moses must have also been fearful of the impending danger he was walking into. I, I kind of think a lot like a firefighter. When, when I was a, an EMT, um, I, my ambulance service that I worked with, we had responded to every structure fire we sat in the background waiting to attend to any medical needs that may happen. And I was always amazed to watch these structures engulfed in flame and fire. And with, seemingly without fear, these firefighters would put on the turnout gear and they would walk without hesitation into that structure. But certainly, they had to have some kind of fear, some kind of uncertainty about what would happen. But I wonder if in those moments, a firefighter would remember his training. I'm sure they do. I, I've never had to do that. I sat in the background waiting to attend to those who, who may have injury in that moment. But in that moment, the firefighter recalls his training. And I think this is Moses. Moses in the moment, as he walks into the fire, as he walks into the cloud, he remembers his training. He remembers how God has already shown up in his life. Perhaps he stops for a moment and he says, you know what, why should I be afraid of all of this? What am I afraid of here? God has already led me to confront Pharaoh to execute 10 horrific plagues that did not affect us, that only affected Egypt. And then when Pharaoh's army is pressing down on us, God split the Red Sea in two and he led us to cross over on dry land into safety. So what's a little smoke and fire? Besides, I wonder if Moses didn't think this. You know what? My whole adventure with God began with a little smoke and fire, with a bush that was on fire but not consumed. So why should I be afraid? Today, I think we face a lot of that same stuff. We, we face a lot of smoke and fire metaphorically. I, I, think, I think of smoke like an attack on the intellect. I mean, you just think about that, what smoke does. Smoke blinds us. Smoke smothers us. It, it sucks the oxygen out of us. You just think about what we see in this world. There's an abundance of false religions, false ideologies, false ambitions, false identities, false philosophies, all of which blind us to the truth. And if we're not careful, they can smother us. They can choke the spiritual life right out of us. And then when I think about fire, I think about that as an attack on the flesh, what's the old saying? You'll finish it for me. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Has that been true in your life? I remember early, my dad would burn trash piles out there and he'd always tell me not to get too close. And I always did. I was always fascinated. The last time I think I remember playing around a fire is when a ember jumped out and landed in my shoe and I couldn't get it out fast enough. And it burned, it, it hurt, and I didn't go back near that fire for at least a week. But fire burns us. Is there not a constant barrage of tantalizing products and images in this world to entice the flesh? Sexual immorality and promiscuity and substance abuse is rampant, it's glorified in, every, in practically every form of media. No longer, by the way, is this behavior seen as deviant. It's seen as deserved in your life. Our adversary, the devil, he's cunning. He is clever. And he knows that through our minds and through our bodies, he can blind us and he can burn us. And he knows that he can hurt us in that way. That's why we have to be on guard. We've got to be careful of the danger that surrounds us because Proverbs 14, 12 tells us clearly, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. If there was ever a verse that I think we as Christians need to keep in the forefront of our mind as we confront the culture around us, it's that. There is a way that seems right to man, but we need to tell him it leads to death but we also need to tell them how to find life. Church, I believe we're gonna see a fallout from this culture's identity crisis in the very near future. The church is gonna be filled with spiritual refugees, people who have embraced the enemy's lies and have been left wanting. And they're gonna to turn to Christ followers for help. We have to be 
proactive in our response. And that's why as scary as it is, we, we need not hold ourselves up as hobbits away from the world in fear. That, that's irresponsible. That shows very little trust in God. We need to be reassured by Psalm 9111, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's important to remember as we confront the depravity that we see around us. And how do we know that? Because that's what grace does for us. That's why grace is amazing. John Newton wrote about it in his fourth stanza. Through many dangers and toils and snares, I've already come. I've already been through a lot of this stuff. How did I get through it? He says, tis grace that brought me safe thus far. Oh, and by the way, it's grace that will lead me home. And speaking of home, number five, it is grace that rewards eternally. Grace is amazing because it rewards eternally. All the pleasures of this world are temporal. All that surrounds us will rust and decay and one day be forgotten. In fact, Matthew 24, 35, Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but what will not pass away are his words. And what are his words? Well, just like God told Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, I will keep my steadfast love for thousands. That steadfast love has said that that Hebrew word, sometimes maybe in your translation is mercy. It means covenant loyalty. It means God made a covenant and he is faithful to keep it. That he will not break his word. Anytime you see that, steadfast love or mercy, you understand that God says, I have promised this to you and I will keep my promise. How can you know that? Because I already have. How can you know that? Because I'm doing it right now. How can you know that? Because I promised I will in the future. Here's the real blessing of this verse. God is not referring to just thousands of people. In other words, heaven has not reached its capacity God will show his steadfast love to thousands of generations. If you've ever done any genealogical research, it's pretty amazing to watch. Uh, the brother I mentioned, he, he did, a, did a lot of genealogical research and I kind of picked up on it as well. And we've been able to track back what we think is 32 generations. And 32 generations ago, that grandfather, his last name wasn't Horton. He didn't have a last name. His name was Odo II. My son's grateful I didn't name him after Odo. But it's amazing. He says, this, this steadfast love is available to thousands of generations. In other words, God's grace is still available today. And it's a grace that will lead you into eternity with God. That's what grace is and why it's so amazing. That's why John Newton wrote this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, he says, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun. So when we get to heaven, we stand before God, we'll be there 10,000 years and we're gonna look back and go, wow, it's been 10,000 years. We're just getting started in this. That's amazing grace right there. That grace that rewards for all eternities available today, we know that to be true because Jesus has not returned yet and we're still drawing breath in our lungs. So if you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, understand you've been given another opportunity this morning to do that. But perhaps you just need one final example of grace to kind of bring this home, to think this through. There was a seminary professor. He had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his course, he distributed the exam with the caution to read it all the way through before beginning to answer it. Now, this had been in their syllabus since the beginning of the semester, and he kept his word. At the end of the year, there was that note on the exam, read it all the way through before you answer anything. As the students read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of the students that they had not studied nearly enough. It was like a foreign language to them. There were things on there they had never imagined being on an exam. The further the students read, the worse it became. 
They were even sure this was the same subject matter. About halfway through, you could hear audible groans throughout the lecture hall. Some students began to take the exam, though. They didn't read all the way through it. They sweated it out for the entire two hours of class time before they reached the last page. Others, they read the first couple of pages. They got angry. They turned in the test. They didn't even sign their names. They stormed out of the classroom mad. What the students did not realize was this. On the last page was a note that read, you have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and do nothing and turn it in, in which case you will receive an A for this assignment. You can take the test and you're subject to whatever grade I give you or you don't have to answer a question Sign your name, turn it in, and get an A. There was one student. He read the entire test. He saw the note at the end, but he decided he'd take the exam anyway. He did not want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C plus, a respectable grade, but he could have gotten an A. See, that story illustrates many people's reaction to how God says he solves sin in our lives. Some people look at God's standard, his moral, ethical perfection. They throw up their hands and surrender. I mean, why even try? This is impossible. This is a foreign language to me. I've never seen this. This doesn't make any sense. I can never live up to all of this. So why even try? Others, they do well for a while. They jump into the exam, they keep going, but after a while, they buckle under the pressure and they just give up, throw up their hands and quit halfway through. And still there are others in this world who are like the student who read the test all the way through and was aware of the professor's offer but took the test anyway. There are people who are unwilling to simply receive God's gift of forgiveness They set about in this life thinking, if I can rack up enough points to win favor with God, I will earn my way to heaven. But see, God's grace is truly like the professor's offer. It it may seem unbelievable. By the way, I, I have two degrees from seminary and I had never had a professor offer that. Never. A lot of C pluses and below (laughs) along the way. But this offer of God, it may seem unbelievable, but if we accept it, then like those stunned students who accepted the professor's offer, we too discover that yes, God's grace is truly free. All we have to do is accept it. You know, I've referenced John Newton's life, his famous hymn throughout the message I want to close by bringing attention to his tombstone. This is what his tombstone says. John Newton, by the way, died in London, December 21st, 1807. And you see it on the screen. It says, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. So one last question before time of invitation. Your tombstone's being etched. What words are put there? If you had to, if somebody had to write your life story in just a couple of sentences on your tombstone, what would it say? More importantly, and more realistically, when you stand before God in judgment, what's he going to say about your life? What's he going to say about your response to amazing grace? You don't have to wonder and fear about that. You can know with certainty today that your sins can be redeemed, that your fears can be relieved, and that's because God responds to us in mercy. So be Reassured as you face the dangers of this world, as you face the dangers and fears of the next life, trust that God has promised a reward in eternity for all who will.
believe. And it's simply because amazing grace is true that that's possible. God, we love you. We thank you that this morning the free offer of salvation continues. That anyone who does not have a personal relationship with you through Jesus can come to know you. And that is truly because of amazing grace. Father, for many in this room, we, we know a time. Maybe we're thinking of John Newton's story and it caused us to think of our own lives and how we met you and how you changed our lives and how you saved us and the joy and the hope and the peace that has come since. And even though it's not been perfect and there's been ups and downs, there's been doubts and there have been fears, at the end of the day, we realize that you have relieved us of these things because of your grace. Father, there is certainly a way that seems right in this world, but in the end, it will lead to death. And Father, for those of us who have experienced the promise of eternal life, we have a responsibility to share this good news wherever we go. So Father, in just a few moments, we'll leave from this room, but it's not so much a dismissal as it is a deployment into a mission field. So Father, resolve in our hearts in this moment that we would be resolute to this mission you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.